And I remind you that in this movement we pledged ourselves 50 years ago that we would provide health care for every man, woman, and child, irrespective of their color, their race, or their financial status. And by God, we're going to do it. Welcome back. Uh, it's been a while. It has been. Sorry for the delays in episodes. Where, uh, we strive to do better, but it's been chaotic. You should basically, I think you should all know by this point that it's going to be a monthly release for a bit. Yeah. Life is crazy, fam. I mean, it's probably crazy for all of you, so. Yeah. I mean, Lindsay works full time. I just recently went back to school. And they made me do a Myers-Briggs test, and I'm still bitter about it. So that's how my month has been going. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, as much as we would love to do these every other week like we were before, monthly seems to be what's happening these days. So thanks for your patience. Um, we, we appreciate it. But uh, with, with that one, we're actually talking about something pretty positive this week, which is kind of nice. It's a nice change. <laughs> a man who is I, I actually consider one of my heroes yeah and argue he did get voted as the greatest canadian didn't he? yeah he did yeah. he beat out he beat out the likes of uh terry fox who i voted for pierre trudeau don cherry can't believe he's on the list well i can't believe it i don't I, don cherry couldn't even believe he was on the list but he's pretty irrelevant now so yeah fuck you don anyway uh you don't matter nope the man we are talking about is tommy douglas the greatest Canadian ever, according to CBC. <laughs> it was a public poll, though, so... According that. to CBC in the country. And the, yeah. But yeah, he was. it was in 2004. They had the Greatest Canadian program, which lasted a few weeks because he had individual episodes on the top ten. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he beat out Terry Fox, Pierre Trudeau, John A. MacDonald, uh, Wayne Gretzky. Anyway... I guess for those of you who don't know who Tommy Douglas is, that's the purpose of this episode. So uh, here we go. He's a great man. Before we start, I should mention, I found this out not too long ago. Uh, if you guys remember the last episode, we talked pretty extensively about a man named James Cross. He was kidnapped by the FLQ and he was a British diplomat. Well, on January 6, 2021, he died from complications of COVID-19. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, it is... It is sad that he's passed away but he was 99 so i think he lived a pretty full and yeah. long life yeah so but it's yeah like that russian uh the the russian general who you know helped clean up chernobyl and you know survived radiation poisoning and then died of covid yeah it's like, the world this guy this guy survived to be kidnapped by the flq and being held hostage for 90 days and Gets, lives to 99 and gets COVID and dies. The world is a cruel place. Yeah. Well, he was 99, so I'm, yeah. I'm going to say... Could be worse. Not, yeah, it could be a lot worse, but rusty, gentle sir. Mm. I just thought I'd bring that up. So anyway, yeah, getting into Tommy. He was born Thomas Clement Douglas on October 20th, 1904 in Camelon, Falkirk, Scotland. All the Scottish people can just, you know get mad at me in the comments for mispronouncing the name 
And uh, as this points out, it's a long line of Cana famous Canadians who were not born in Canada. <laughs> yes. He was son of Thomas Sr., an iron molder and Boer War veteran, and his wife, Annie. Tommy and his family moved to Canada in 1910 and settled in Winnipeg. Douglas was inspired about Medicare at a young age from personal experience. Prior to emigrating, Douglas injured his right knee as a result of a fall. He, de he developed osteomyelitis. Uh, Jen is shaking in her boots right now. Uh, Jen is my medical friend. Anyway. Uh, an infection in the bone causing fever, fatigue, and redness around the area does not sound pleasant. It does not. It also causes the area to swell up pretty significantly. Despite several operations in Scotland, it flared up again when he relocated to Winnipeg and he spent many days in the hospital. The condition was so severe, doctors were convinced his leg would need to be amputated. Despite the calls for his leg to be amputated, an orthopedic surgeon and medical professor became interested in Douglas's case, and he agreed to operate for, on his knee for free that, and in an operation that would actually cure it. However, his one condition was that the operation be observed by medical students as an educational experience, because this was still around the time that they were, you know, like people were allowed to gather around a patient being operated on. Douglas's parents agreed the operation was a success and Douglas was spared amputation. Small victories. Very much so. <laughs> I think that was a big victory. Definitely in a is. Yeah. Oh, yes. A whole leg. Douglas credited this experience with inspiring the belief healthcare should be free for all individuals. He is quoted as saying, quote, I felt that no boy should have to depend either for his leg or his life upon the ability of his parents to raise enough money to bring a first-class surgeon to his bedside." End quote. The family moved briefly back to Scotland during the First World War, returning to Winnipeg in 1918. During his time back in Scotland, he worked as, as a soap boy for a barber shop and later a cork factory. At age 13, when Douglas returned to Winnipeg, he witnessed the Winnipeg General Strike's Bloody Sunday, which on June 23rd, 1919. If you go back to our RCMP episode, this was a pretty extreme reaction on the government and police's side against working, uh, striking workers. Uh, he witnessed it from a rooftop overlooking Main Street, where the worst of the worst happened during that day. He was horrified at the sight of police and strike breakers attacking strikers with clubs and firearms. He was also unfortunate enough to witness a, a Royal Northwest Mounted Police officer shoot and kill an unarmed striker. Douglas became involved with the big, with the, with the one big union who is the union behind the general strike and a lot of other strikes at this time. At age 15, and the re way he became involved was he took up boxing at one of their gyms in Winnipeg. <laughs> different time mm. he won the lightweight championship of manitoba after six rounds two years in a row the first win he suffered a broken nose lost teeth and strained his hand so this man was all not only was he a, a political badass he was a lightweight champion <laughs> <laughs> douglas enrolled at brandon college now university in 1924 and it which was a Baptist institution affiliated with McMaster University, which for people wondering, McMaster is one of the high 
Yeah. I guess it would be considered kind of in Canada's Ivy League kind of deal. Yeah, I would say McMaster, McGill, Dalhousie. Those yeah. universities are. Yeah. At least in the East. They're big. Yeah. And if you get them, you're hot shit. Like, if you get into there, you're kind of hot shit. So. Yeah. Unlike other such institutions, Brandon College had a more progressive attitude, encouraging students to steer away from fundamentalism and that Christianity advocated for social justice. Douglas's decision to attend Brandon stemmed from him not finishing high school and the college offered grades 9 to 11 courses, followed by acceptance into the arts program. He was further convinced to finish his high school courses there by a professor who told him, don't waste your opportunities, get, like, finish it, because he knew Tommy was a bright, was a bright guy. Part of his studies required him to recite humorous monologues, which is a skill he would later use in his career, as you're about to find out. Douglas eventually went on to study to become a Baptist minister. He managed to get himself a position preaching for a Presbyterian church who were desperate for people to work at the church after they lost their other other priest, I guess. During this time, he met Irma Dempsey, who would regularly attend services. She later enrolled at Brandon College studying music and working as a music teacher. The two began dating and eventually married in 1930. They would remain married for the remainder of, of their lives. Yeah, so um, as he mentioned, he married Irma Dempsey, and they moved to the small town of Weyburn, um, where he practiced, uh, yeah, he was a river, a preacher, but um, he was dismayed by the suffering that he saw in the province, uh, as during this time, he, they moved to Weyburn really during the height of the Great Depression, so he was dismayed by the suffering he saw as the province was hit especially hard by the economic depression and drought. So for those, I guess, who aren't really familiar, Saskatchewan is a very agricultural province. It's much like the uh, Saskatchewan, Alberta, where we live, Manitoba, which borders it. They're all agricultural provinces and they're prairies ultimately. So there's a lot of wind, it's dry. So a lot of the conditions that existed in the United States with the Dust Bowl existed here on the prairies as well. Well, it's the same... It's the same concept, yeah. exactly. Well, and the same concept and same plains. Really. really, it is. Yeah, it just extends essentially north from northern Texas all the way to here. So, Many farmers in the Weyburn area during the Depression uh, had become destitute and were unable to feed or house their families. 90% of the residents in the area received some form of government aid, but the government aid at the time was very limited and basically didn't help anybody. <laughs> there was absolutely no money for school or medical care. Douglas recalled burying children and young men who had died because there was no medical care available, even if it had been, and even if it had been, there was no money to pay for it. So he buried a girl who died of appendicitis, which was completely like predict or preventable. And same with a 30-year-old man who died of something I can't remember now, but it was something extremely like preventable. Basically, he had like oh, it was a dental issue. He basically died from like an abscessed tooth. God. Yeah, and so. Douglas, obviously, like Jonah had mentioned, had seen, had witnessed, had grown up during the 1919 general strike and had really been around a lot of, like, socialism and, like, uprising, like, labor, labor uprisings and, and wanting to help people in that community, so... Yeah, I forgot to mention, he actually took a whole course on socialism at Brandon. Yeah, so he, he cared a lot and cared really deeply about helping people and, and believed very deeply in, in community and things like that, so he did his best to help when he could, so he set up classes in his church... He organized food and clothing drives and worked with local union leaders to pressure the government over jobs and unemployment assistance. 
He also began talking with other ministers, teachers, and labor leaders about how to improve Canadian politics and society. Douglas was convinced that the suffering he saw in his community and by his studies that political action was necessary. Only government intervention could alleviate the hardship he saw around him, but the traditional political parties were reluctant to make any significant changes to the system. Much like Hoover, when he was in power, he was reluctant to really do a lot. While Hoover, Hoover gets demonized a lot for his inaction, which is valid, but what people de- he's demonized as if he doesn't care, but he did care. He cared very deeply. He just didn't really know how to act, which isn't an excuse or necessarily a justification, but I think it's important to like have that context, I guess, that Hoover wasn't actually evil, he just didn't know what to do. And I think the same could be said for the leaders of Canadian politics. They're just very like old school and very like they're entrenched in their beliefs and didn't really understand that this is a a crisis that is absolutely beyond anything that, you know, yeah. they knew how to deal with. So in 1932, Douglas established a local association of the Independent Labour Party. And two years later, he attended the National Convention of what would become the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, or the CCF. The CCF aimed to alleviate the suffering that workers and farmers, the ill and the old, endured under capitalism, which was seen starkly throughout the Great Depression, and now. Uh And this was through the the creation of a cooperative commonwealth, which would entail economic cooperation, public ownership of the economy, and political reform. The object of the party, as stated at its founding meeting in Calgary, Alberta in 1932, was, quote, the federation joining together of organizations whose purpose is the establishment in Canada of a cooperative commonwealth in which the basic principle of regulating production, distribution, and exchange will be the supplying of human needs instead of the making of profit. The goal of the CCF was defined as, quote, community freed from the domination of irresponsible financial and economic power in which all social means of production and distribution, including land, are socially owned and controlled either by voluntarily organized groups of producers and consumers or, in the case of major public services and utilities and such productive and distributive enterprises, as can be conducted most efficiently when owned in common by public corporations responsible to the people's elected representatives. Actually, it's I find it really interesting that all these socialist parties were founded in Alberta and now it's like, you know, when you think well, of our current... Yeah, it's, just, it's, just, it's just so interesting to think about, like, where we're at in politics now and how Alberta has such a strong history of socialism and just like yeah it's really I don't know it's just interesting to me so the CCF's first MPs were mostly members of the ginger group which was a faction of progressive and labor members who advocated for socialism it was mostly comprised of uh, members of the United Farmers of Alberta and the aforementioned left-wing members of the progressive and labor parties uh, this group included uh, United Farmers of Alberta MPs William Irvine Ted Garland Agnes Mc Agnes McVale, Humphrey Mitchell, Abraham Albert Heaps, Agnes McInnes, and Labour MP J.S. Woodsworth. It can be said that the CCF was founded on May 26, 1932, when the Ginger Group MPs and members of the League for Social Reconstruction met in William Irvine's office, the unofficial caucus meeting room for the Ginger Group, and went about forming the basis of a new party. J.S. Woodsworth was unanimously appointed the temporary leader until they could hold a founding convention, and the temporary name of the party was the Commonwealth Party. At the founding convention in Calgary in 1932, the party settled on the name the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, bracket, Farm Labor Socialist, and elected J.S. Wordsworth as the party leader. Wordsworth had been an independent Labor Party MP since 1921 and a member of the Ginger Group of MPs, as previously mentioned. The party's 1933 convention took place in Regina, Saskatchewan, and adopted the Regina Manifesto as the party's platform. The manifesto outlined a number of goals in which included the public ownership of key industries, universal public pensions, universal health care, children's allowances, unemployment insurance, and workers' compensation, 
And in its conclusion, the manifesto read, quote, no CCF government will rest until, or will rest content until it has eradicated capitalism and put into, or put into operation the full program of socialized planning, which will lead to the establishment in Canada of the Cooperative Commonwealth. Pre Preach it. Okay. The party was affiliated to the Socialist International. Um, in 1935, Douglas was elected to the House of Commons representing the CCF along with six other people. Douglas was a particularly adept speaker and knew how to make people laugh. He had previously run for office in Saskatchewan and lost, and so he decided to go for federal politics and uh, won. And along the way, he kind of learned that he was, yeah, really good at making people laugh. His speeches often began with jokes, which varied from long stories to punchy one-liners, but probably his most famous story is the story of Mouseland. Mouseland was a place where all the little mice lived and played, were born and died, and they lived much as you and I do. They even had a parliament. And every four years they had an election. They used to walk to the polls and cast their ballots. Some of them even got a ride to the polls. Got a ride for the next four years afterwards, too. Just like you and me. And every time on election day, all the little mice used to go to the ballot box and they used to elect the government. A government made up of big, fat, black cats. Now, if you think it's strange that mice should elect a government made up of cats, you just look at the history of Canada for the last 90 years, and maybe you'll see that they weren't any stupider than we are. Now, I'm not saying anything against the cats. They were nice fellows. They conducted the government with dignity. They passed good laws. That is, laws that were good for cats. But the laws that were good for cats weren't very good for mice. One of the laws said that mouse holes had to be big enough so a cat could get his paw in. Another law said that mice could only travel at certain speeds so that a cat could get his breakfast without too much physical effort. All the laws were good laws for cats, but all they were hard on the mice. And life was getting harder and harder. And when the mice couldn't put up with it anymore, they decided something had to be done about it. So they went en masse to the polls. They voted the black cats out. And they put in the white cats. The white cats, the white cats had put up a terrific campaign. They said all that mouse land needs is more vision. They said the trouble with mouse land is those round mouse holes we've got. If you put us in, we'll establish square mouthholes. And they did. And the square mouseholes were twice as big as the round mouseholes. And now the cat could get both his paws in. And life was tougher than ever. And when they couldn't take that anymore, they voted the white cats out and put the black ones in again. 
and then they went back to the white cats, and then to the black cats. They even tried half black cats and half white cats. <laughs> and they called that coalition. <laughs> they even got one government made up of cats with spots on them. They were cats that tried to make a noise like a mouse, but they ate like a cat. <laughs> you see, my friends, the trouble wasn't with the color of the cats. The trouble was that they were cats. And because they were cats, they naturally looked after cats instead of mice. Presently, there came along one little mouse who had an idea. My friends, watch out for the little fellow with an idea. And he said to the other mice, look, fellas, why do we keep on electing a government made up of cats? Why don't we elect a government made up of mice? Oh, he said he's a Bolshevik. Lock him up. <laughs> so they put him in jail. But I want to remind you that you can lock up a mouse or a man, but you can't lock up an idea. In his first two terms in Parliament, he re earned a reputation for being a skillful and witty debater. He claimed to represent the under underprivileged and exploited, and he took unpopular stands in defense of civil liberties. So, uh, while he was very progressive for his time and whatnot, there's... Uh, there is a dark side to Tommy Douglas, unfortunately, which puts me at odds with him because he supported one of, in my opinion, one of the most barbaric systems or barbaric practices, and that is eugenics. Following his graduation from Brandon, we have to go back. Apologies. We, again, it's, welcome back to Panastoria. <laughs> yeah. We don't really do things linearly, linearly. No. Following his graduation from Brandon, Douglas pursued his Master of Arts at McMaster University. His thesis was titled The Problems of the Subnormal Family, which I gotta say is a lot nicer than a lot of other uh, pro-eugen... Like, a, a nicer... Still not nice, but it's a nicer way of describing the people eugenics targeted. Douglas's definition of the subnormal family were persons with mentally or morally... Or were, who were mentally or morally unstable. Morally unstable. It, 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 uh. This included people with low IQs, substandard morals, which again, what does that mean? Prone to, quote, social diseases, end quote, or those who pose a great public expense. Douglas's thesis studied 12 alleged, quote, immoral or non-moral, end quote, women of Weyburn, Saskatchewan. He chased back 200 descendants of these women, 175 of whom were still alive, and many who had similar immoral or mental defects. He argued the case of the growth of, in the subnormal family is hereditary. Douglas concluded sterilization was the best method to prevent the continuation of the subnormal family and prevent mental, physical, and moral defects. He also openly advocated for eugenics in his thesis, recommending social segregation, including segregation of the sexes, 
and requiring medical examinations for individuals planning to marry. He submitted his thesis in 1933 and completed his master's program. He would go on to regret his thesis later in life and distance himself from eugenics. In fact, he would rarely ever mention his thesis later in his life. And the explanation for this is yeah. explained pretty quickly. But um, He later enrolled at the University of Chicago for his PhD in sociology. However, he never completed his thesis. Instead, he spent, two, he spent most of his time in Chicago visiting and interviewing people living in the various hobo camps popping up as a result of the Great Depression. Yeah. He, there's not a lot on this, but Douglas and the CCF kind of became very involved in the debates about Canada's entry into World War II because the CCF was actually kind of a party that was split um, in terms of its support of this. So there was a lot of, there was a strong contingent of, pacif of pacifists, including the leader of the party. And despite his many criticisms of parliament, Douglas actually did not fall into the category of pacifist. Um, so in... 1936, Douglas had visited Nazi Germany and was disgusted by what he saw. Both the military, he was disgusted by the militarism and also seeing eugenics in practice. Yeah, he uh, was particularly dis disgusted. You know more about this, so. Yeah, he was particularly disgusted with its use of creating a master race, and was horrified. And yeah. I think, and it's really definitely there that he realized how destructive th th this practice really is. Yeah. And so at a 1939 Special House of Commons debate on entering the war, Douglas supported going to war against Hitler. He felt that what he had seen was like, you know, harbinger of things to come and didn't like it. He stated his reasons for not being a pacifist as, quote, if you accept the completely absolutist position of the pacifist, then you are saying that you are prepared to allow someone else who has no such scruples to destroy all the values you've built up. This is what I used to argue with Mr. Woodsworth. If you, come to, if you came to a choice between losing freedom of speech, religion, association, thought, and all the things that make life worth living and resorting to force, you'd use force. What you have internationally is what you have within a nation. You must have law and order, and you must have the necessary military means to enforce that law and order. Douglas and another MP, Coldwell, their position was eventually adopted by the CCF National Council, but they did not admonish Woodsworth's pacifist stand and allowed him to put it forward in the House. Douglas even stood up with Woodsworth and assisted him during his speech, as Woodsworth had had a stroke earlier in the year and needed help holding his notes and things like that. So Douglas stood up for him dutifully, even though he disagreed with his stance. And in 1939, they voted to formally support Canada's war effort, but there were some severe limitations to that. But after France fell in 1940, it became very clear that we needed to go to war against Hitler. <laughs> and so uh, the party wholly supported the war, including conscription if it was necessary. Uh, Douglas himself volunteered for the army for an expedition to Hong Kong, but it was re rejected for overseas service because he had an old leg injury, and it's actually entirely possible that this is the reason, well, actually, it's very much the case. So the uh, regiment that he had signed up to go with to Hong Kong was actually entirely killed Yeah. on their uh, expedition. So thankfully, he didn't get to go. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty, I guess. it's still a bit of a stain on our relations with Japan. So. Yeah. So Douglas remained in the House of Commons as an MP. So despite being a federal MP and not yet an MLA in Saskatchewan, Douglas was elected leader of the Saskatchewan CCF in 1942 after successfully challenging the incumbent George Harrow Williams. He did not, however, resign from the House of Commons until 1944. So he stayed in... I think this is definitely a conflict of interest, but whatever. Um, <laughs> that's how it works, I guess. 
he led the CCF to a decisive victory in the 1944 Saskatchewan provincial election, winning 30, or 47 of 53 seats in the Legislative Assembly in Regina, and thus forming the first dem social democratic government not only in Canada, but all of North America. And though Douglas would go on to win five more elections, most of his government's pioneering innovations came in the first term, and they included the creation of the publicly owned Saskatchewan Power Corporation, successor to the Saskatchewan Electrical Power Commission, which began a long program of extending electrical service to isolated farms and villages. Um, so Tommy Douglas actually has like, him and FDR are actually a lot more similar than not in terms of like the things that they were striving to do. It's just that what Tommy Douglas did was on more of a provincial level than a national level. But um, for anyone who's not particularly familiar with a lot of the New Deal programs and things that happened, one of the most important New Deal programs that happened in the United States during the Great Depression was the Tennessee Valley Water Project or Electrical Project. And essentially what it did is it brought electricity to much of the South. Um, the South is still the poor, really some of the poorest places on, in the United States, but during the Depression it was like extra, extra bad. It was a very agrarian, not very well like modernized society. And the prairies in Alberta, or the prairies of Canada were very much the same. So they're very poor, very agrarian, not a lot of, there's no electricity, no running water for the most part. Like, is a pretty bare bones existence. And so. Can you think of another big, can you think of a massive country that was the exact same way around this time that a certain government took power? Hmm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it was extremely important for electricity and things like that to be brought to these places. And so that was. Because essentially, I mean, electricity and running water obviously does a lot to help your farm <laughs> and people. <laughs> like, makes life a lot easier. So that was one of the most important things he did. And uh, so, yeah, the, the Tommy Douglas and FDR, like, connection is actually quite real. Except that Tommy Douglas was a real socialist. Um, <laughs> anyway, the creation of Canada's... More things. So the creation of Canada's first publicly owned automotive insurance service, the Saskatchewan Government Insurance Office, uh, still exists annoying to deal with, but they still exist. Uh, the creation of a larger number of a large number of crown corporations, many of which competed with existing private sectors. This still exists in Saskatchewan to a large extent. If Scott Moe keeps his grimy hands off of them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> legislation that allowed the unionization of the public service. Uh, the passage of the Saskatchewan Bill of Rights, which uh, was legislation that broke new ground as it protected both fundamental freedoms and equality rights against abuse not only by government actors, but also on the part of powerful private institutions and persons. This, uh, this bill, I think, as much as I don't know this for sure, I feel like it was a kind of a reaction to what happened during World War II because this bill preceded the Universal Declaration of Human Rights by the United Nations uh, of, by about 18 months. Wow. So I think that Douglas, yeah, saw a lot of what happened in World War II and felt that, yeah, that was important. Uh, but the most significant achievement during Douglas's time as premier was the implementation of government-funded health insurance. Tommy Douglas was the pioneer of Canadian, of the Canadian socialized Medicare program, and without him, we probably wouldn't have it. Yeah. As mentioned before, Douglas camp Douglas's campaign for universal health care was based on his personal experience, both as a poor immigrant from Scotland and having to go undergo several oper expensive operations at the same time. Universal health care was promised as far back as 1919 by the Liberals in their election campaign. However, following their victory, they never enacted this promise, you know, like every, almost every elected government in Canadian history. Yeah, pretty much. 
The liberals again advocated for universal health care in 1945 and again didn't keep their promise. Just kind of stopped talking about it. The Douglas government brought in Dr. Henry Segarist from Baltimore in 1944 as an advisor in reforming the provincial health care system. The reform started off with simple improvements to Saskatchewan's infrastructure, particularly sewage in the rural parts of the province. At this point, many majority of the, actually probably all of the rural areas in the province were still using outhouses. So part of it was the simple installation of flush toilets to replace these outhouses and improve sanitation. So yeah, improving health starts in the weirdest places. <laughs> yep, pretty much. Furthermore, Sigurist recommended changes be made gradually as the province was nearly bankrupt from the previous government. At this point, Saskatchewan had the fewest number of hospital beds per capita in Canada. This meant more hospitals would need to be built prior to the implementation of universal health care because, well, you need someone to actually provide the health care. Yeah. In Sigurist's words, Saskatchewan needed to, quote, provide complete medical services to all the people of the province, irrespective of their economic status and irrespective of whether they live in a town or country. The universal health care program started by focusing on the most vulnerable patients, namely those with cancer, venereal diseases, and psychiatric issues. To oversee the new program, Douglas established the Health Services Planning Commission, led by husband and wife team, Dr. Drs. Mindel and, C and Cecil Sheps. The program extended in 1945 to the elderly, the blind, those who were on mother's allowances, and persons who were wards of the state, so people who were like basically hadn't uh, were incapable of taking care of themselves, but had no kin to take care of them. Yeah. The pilot project for Medicare, known as the Health Region Number One, began in Swift Current the same year. In 1946, the provincial revenue finally stabilized, and the government approved the construction or renovation of 33 hospitals. Despite initial success, the Planning Commission was were concerned Douglas's goal of January 1st, 1947 was too soon. However, however, Douglas was confident it would be viable by then. Opposition to the plan took form and the executive of the Saskatchewan Hospital Association threatened to resign from their posts, refusing to cooperate with the plan. They argued most of the province's hospitals were constructed using church funds, charitable donations, or community funding. Douglas countered these worries by stating they would not be acquiring ownership over the hospitals, they would only be covering the expenses incurred by patients. At the time, between 30 and 60% of hospital bills were left unpaid. So this was actually beneficial to these privately built and run hospitals. Yep. So that quickly turned, their, changed their minds around. The plan was put into place on schedule on January 1st, 1947. The success of the plan was quickly noticed and previous detractors became supporters after seeing the accomplishments achieved. At the end of seven years, the province went from having the fewest beds per capita to the most beds per capita in all of Canada. The program was noticed by the other provinces and representatives were sent from across Canada to observe in hopes of starting their own programs. 
British Columbia, Alberta, and Nova Scotia were the first of the other provinces to start similar plans. In 1957, Diefenbaker's Progressive Conservative government passed the Hospital Insurance and Diagnostic Services Act. This saw the federal government co cover half the cost of provincially run hospital insurance. This created a situation where any province without public hospital insurance received no benefits themselves despite subsidizing healthcare in other provinces. Thus, these provinces were more inclined to implement their own public hospital plans. Full universal healthcare became the next stage in Douglas's plan by the end of the 1950s. Douglas first attempted to create the Advisory Planning Committee on Medical Care, which would be equally filled with members of the government, public, and medical professionals. The Saskatchewan College of Physicians were the ones consulted to provide medical professionals to the committee. While initially only expressing concern, they soon became outright opposed to the plan, putting up a stiff opposition, and they refused to provide any names for the committee. Their main demand was for the government to subsidize private health care insurance when needed. Another obstacle was many of the new doctors in Saskatchewan had actually immigrated from the UK in order to avoid working within their newly established NHS program. These new urban professionals now outnumbered the rural doctors, the ones who were most likely to support the CCF's program. The college spent $100,000 on an ad campaign opposing Medicare, of which 35000 came from out of province. This came during the 1960 provincial elections. The campaign backfired as the public found their claims unbelievable and the CCF was re-elected to their fifth consecutive majority. Douglas resigned as Premier of Saskatchewan in 1961 in order to take a position as leader of the newly founded New Democratic Party, which Lindsay will talk about in a bit, and was succeeded by Woodrow Lloyd, who continued the fight. The Saskatchewan Medical Care Insurance Bill was passed in October, but Lloyd was forced to delay the, its enactment from April to July 1962 due to pressure from doctors to withdraw the plan. In 1962, the tension between the doctors and the government came to a head and a strike was called at a meeting of the college in May 1962. The College of Physicians claimed doctors would leave the province en masse if socialized Medicare was enacted and set up what is known as Keep Our Doctors Committees province-wide. <laughs> On July 1st, 90% of doctors in the province walked out of their jobs and closed their offices. In order to prevent a major catastrophe, the government brought in doctors from other provinces, as well as Britain and the United States, to fill in the vacancies. An anonymous letter signed as, quote, the Swift Current Citizens Safety Committee, end quote, was sent to various doctors around the province, accusing them of acting against the people and outright betraying them. It warned that unless doctors went back to work on July 6, harm would come to them. Dr. Emil John Cousy of Kenora, read the letter and as a result suffered a fatal heart attack <laughs> yeah <laughs> not Damn. not quite the harm i think you were expecting but no. yeah <laughs> the strike wasn't going anywhere and many doctors returned to work by mid-july negotiations between the strikers and government began and were mediated by lord taylor who was the man who helped bring nhs program to britain Several amendments were made to the plan, including the ability 
to, for doctors to opt out and for the increase in fee payments to doctors on the plan. The number of doctors on the committee was also increased. Overall, the strike was a failure and only increased support for Medicare. By 1965, most doctors in Saskatchewan supported the plan. The federal government took notice of the program's success yet again. Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson brought forward a plan to expand the previous 50% coverage plan, now covering 50% of all medical costs, and allowed all provinces to start their own universal health care programs. It was supported by the federal NDP and the progressive conservatives. And thus, Canada got federalized universal health care, socialized health care. Yay. And it's the same plan that we, like, basically the same plan with some changes, but it's, it's basically yeah. the, exactly the it's same. It's been amended, but... Yeah. And uh, I got to say, I have benefited quite a bit from socialized Medicare. So have I. So. Yeah. Right. So, um, as Jonah mentioned, uh, Douglas resigned from the premiership in 1961, and the reason for that was related to his old friends in the federal CCF party. You see, the 1958 Canadian general election was something of a disaster for the CCF. Uh, its caucus was, was reduced to a measly eight seats, and even the party leader lost his seat. So, not good. The CCF executive knew that their party was dying and needed a radical change. They persuaded Coldwell to remain the, as party of, or leader of the party. But since they needed someone with a seat in the house to replace him, they tapped Hazen Argue as, what a name, Hazen Argue, <laughs> as its new leader in the house. Like, that's a great name to be a politician. Yeah. Argue, like literally hey. spelled like Argue. Hazen Argue. Yeah, it was built to be in an argument. Um, <laughs> during the lead up to the CCF convention in 1960, Argue pressed Coldwell to step down and this leadership challenge jeopardized plans for an orderly transition to the new party that was being planned by the CCF and the Canadian Le Canadian Labor Congress. CCF National Pre President David Lewis, who succeeded Coldwell as president in 1958 when the national chairman and national, and national president positions merged, and the rest of the new party's organizers opposed Argue's maneuvers and wanted our old friend Tommy Douglas to be the new party's first leader. To prevent their plans from being completely derailed, Lewis unsuccessfully attempted to persuade Argue not to force a vote at the convention on the question of the party's leadership, and there was a split between the parliamentary caucus and the party executive on the convention floor. Coldwell stepped down and Argue replaced him to become the party's final national leader. Coldwell had wanted Douglas to succeed him in leading the national CCF as far back as 1941, when it was obvious that Coldwell would be assuming national leadership. Coldwell and Douglas were obviously very close. When the time came for the new, quote, new party to form in 1961, Coldwell pressured Douglas to run for leadership. Coldwell did not trust Argue, and many in the CCF leadership thought that he was already having secret meetings with the liberals with a view to merge the party with them which obviously Coldwell and Douglas and everyone else didn't want. <laughs> Coldwell and Douglas both thought Lewis would not be a viable option either because Lewis was not likely to defeat Argue due to his role as a disciplinarian over the years, which made him some enemies. After much consultation with Coldwell, Lewis, and his caucus, Douglas decided in June 1961 to reluctantly contest the leadership of the new party. To the surprise of few, he handily defeated Argue on August 3rd, 1961 at the first New Democratic Party leadership convention in Ottawa and became the party's first leader. Six months later, Argue crossed the floor and joined the Liberals. Douglas handed in his aforementioned re resignation from the Premiership of Saskatchewan and sought election to the House of Commons in the riding of Regina City in 1962, but he was defeated by Ken Moore. He was later elected in a by-election in the riding of Burnaby, Coquitlam in British Columbia. He was re-elected as MP for that riding in 1963 and again in 1965, but he lost 
the redistricted seat of Burnaby Seymour in the 1968 federal election. He won a seat again in 1969 in the 1969 by-election in the riding of Nanaimo Cowichan, the islands, followed by the death of Colin Cameron in 1968, and he represented that riding until his retirement from electoral politics in 1979. The NDP did better, so the new, the new Democratic Party, or the NDP, did better in elections than its CCF predecessor, but still did not experience the breakthrough that it had hoped for. Uh, still hasn't, really. Um, almost did, but... Almost, but not quite. Despite this, though, Douglas was greatly respected by the party members and Canadians at large as the party wielded considerable influence during Lester Pearson's minority governments in the mid-1960s. So our last episode the, uh, on the FLQ crisis, so Douglas had a part in that, kind of, <laughs> um, at least in the parliamentary debates. So during the FLQ crisis, Douglas and Lewis, who now is an MP, were kind of on the hot seat, uh, with Lewis being the only NDP MP with any ties to Quebec. Douglas and Lewis opposed the implementation of the War Measures Act, and for those who don't remember or haven't listened to that episode, the War Measures Act was previously only enacted during wartime and it imposed extreme limitations on civil liberties and gave the police and military vastly expanded powers for arresting and detaining suspects, usually with little to no evidence required. Although it was only meant to be used in Quebec, uh, because it was a federal act, it was technically enforced throughout Canada. As they are wont to do, some police officer, or some police services outside of Quebec took advantage of this for their very own purposes, which mostly had nothing even remotely to do with the Quebec situation, they just wanted to abuse their power. This is what Douglas and Lewis had suspected would happen and why they opposed enacting the War Measures Act in the first place. During a second vote on October 19th, 16 of the 20 NDP members voted against the implementation of the War Measures Act in the House of Commons, and four voted with the Liberals. Douglas and Lewis took a lot of flack from parliamentarians for being against the War Measures Act, and they dropped to an approval rating of 7% in public opinion polls. Lewis, speaking for the party at a press scrum that day, said, quote, The information we do have showed a situation of criminal acts and criminal conspiracy in Quebec, but there is no information that there, would be, that there was unintended or, or apprehended or planned insurrection, which alone would justify invoking the War Measures Act. Douglas voiced similar criticism, saying, quote, the government, I submit, is using a sledgehammer to crack a peanut. About five years later, many of the MPs who had chastised Lewis and Douglas so publicly about their not will being willing to implement it, regretted implementing it, and uh, even told Douglas and Lewis that they fucked up and uh, apologized for voting to enact the War Measures Act, because Douglas and Lewis were right. It was definitely a disaster. Yeah. And uh, that's how the NDP was formed. Yeah. And uh, the NDP got close to I guess we'll kind of talk about that when we talk legacy, about his legacy yeah. but um, for the meantime Douglas actually retired as, as leader in 1971 with David Lewis succeeding him as NDP leader Douglas remained in the, in the house and as the uh, he took up the position of energy critic during a, <laughs> what happens to be a very uh, tumultuous time for energy yeah. around the world he requested the NDP members not buy him a parting gift during the leadership convention, which is a tradition done in, to all previous leaders. And like, it's a tradition done in all parties for retiring leaders. So they get him a gift. Yeah. But he didn't want that. However, they still kind of gave him a gift at the leadership convention because he and his mentor, Coldwell, were honored with the creation of the Douglas Coldwell Foundation, which is a charity and political think tank with the goal of, quote, promoting education and research into social democracy, end quote. Still around today. 
He spent much of his time in this position advocating for a, quote, Canadian-centered energy policy, end quote, in regards to oil production. He argued for more public ownership of in the Canadian energy sector in order for processing and research jobs surrounding the oil field to remain in Canada and away from the hands of large multinational companies. Yeah, he doesn't sound like... It's, it's not a bad idea. <laughs> During the 1973 energy crisis, the Liberal government held a minority government with the NDP acting as kingmakers in terms of the balance of power. At one point, Trudeau caught wind the NDP were considering voting against the government due to its inaction to tackle the preservation of Canada's oil supply as opposed to boosting the American supply. In order to prevent an early election, Trudeau announced a plan which settled most of the NDP's grievances. According to NP Bill Knight, Douglas turned to him following Trudeau's announcement of the plan in the House and said, quote, Well, how do you like that? He hardly missed a word, end quote. The resulting plan gave birth to the creation of Petro-Canada. Hmm. If you guys listened to our really, really early episode on Peter Lougheed, we kind of talk about the creation of Petro-Canada. We do. Which at that point was still a crown corporation. Mm-hmm. Douglas fought for Canadian independence from American interference for the remainder of his political career. Douglas also took time to speak with young NDP supporters and candidates, giving any advice he could offer. Among these young newbies were future NDP leader Ed Broadbent and future Ontario Premier Bob Ray, which is probably super controversial to mention. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Ontario. Douglas formally retired from politics in 1979, taking a job on the board of directors for Husky Oil. Hmm. In June 1984, Douglas was struck by a bus during one of his regular five-mile walks. He was injured but quickly recovered in time for his 80th birthday. Yeah, he was a tough guy. He was pretty tough. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the same year, on November 30th, he was made a member of the Queen's Privy Council for Canada, which I tried looking up to explain what what this is and I don't understand so don't worry about it folks also the same year Douglas began noticing he was having issues with his memory and decided to step away from all speaking engagements it doesn't sound like he had dementia but it was definitely age-related memory issues on February 24th 1986 Douglas passed away from cancer in Ottawa at the age of 81 he rests still in Beechwood Cemetery in Ottawa which is I think one of the big like if you're buried there you're you're like yeah top it's, honors it's for Canadians yeah maybe Arlington some yeah kind of similar. like similar to Arlington like, yeah. in a way yeah so Douglas has had like quite a legacy I guess we're, we're kind of kind of freely speak now because yeah he has um, had quite a legacy I mean He's inspired some of the greatest leaders we've had. For sure. Yeah, so like like we mentioned, um, the NDP as a party, which I think is probably his best, or well, aside from his greatest lasting legacy, obviously, is healthcare. I think that's fairly obvious, but yeah. I would say that his probably after that, the next major lasting legacy really is the creation of the NDP because they still exist. And I guess like it was satisfying to see when the NDP had won in Alberta because... It was like, you know, I guess kind of, it was just like nice to see the, the socialist roots of Alberta coming up again, I guess. Yeah. And like, to be clear, the NDP and Alberta aren't even really that 
left wing. Not, no, they're <laughs> at all actually. Center left, definitely yeah, for sure. But that's the, they're not. They're probably that. the most moderate of all of all of the NDP yeah. provincial NDPs, except maybe British Columbia. Yeah. Or no, no, I'm, no. I'm talking out my ass. Never mind. Yeah, never mind. I, was like, <laughs> I don't know about that. Uh, yeah, they're definitely the more mo- one of the most moderate NDPs. But on a federal level, so the NDP has had a lot of success on the pro- well. They've gotten a, a, they've had a lot a lot of electoral success. I won't say they've had a lot of governing success necessarily. No. But they've had it because they've had some unfortunately some very inept people get elected. Bob Ray, we mentioned yeah. I mentioned Bob Ray and he <sighs> did a shit job yeah. in Ontario. And uh uh what's his face in on Saskatchewan for a long time too. Can't remember now. The name is escaping me. But the NDP has been elected in almost every prov- in almost every province in Alberta, I think, at least once. Um Every province in Alberta? No, sorry, in Canada. <laughs> sorry. Um, as a federal party, they haven't really had... They've definitely been the third wheel pretty much forever since they started. Um, but they did have some success in uh, the 2011 elections, right? They had a massive, su- they yeah, so, a massive success. Yeah, so it was the first time neither the Liberals or the Conservatives were the in the opposition. opposition. So that was definitely... that's That was the peak of... The peak of... Uh, the NDP's success, which... They won 103 seats, I believe? Yeah, which is definitely the high the high orange watermark. Uh, their, their party color is orange, yeah. I guess, to be fair, so everyone knows. Um, that was definitely the high, high watermark for them as a party. Um, I would say they've certainly, since then, though, they've managed to... They've dropped. They lost some seats. They've lost seats, but they've still stayed at least relevant. Yeah, they've lost... Unfortunately, they've lost seats to the... Fucking block Quebec. Yeah, that was. Quebec. I think that was probably the worst part. Is that a lot of their losses were in Quebec, and a lot of them were to the block. They weren't even to a traditional party, yeah. and that's what sucks. To put it this way, in the last election in 2019, the NDP had the third most votes like across Canada, but the block and the block had like seven percent overall. But they still had more seats than the, the NDP, NDP. So bullshit. Our electoral system's kind of weird and also fuck the block. Yeah, but the the, <laughs> the, the biggest su- reason for the NDP's success in that election... Is Jack Layton. Oh, yeah, abs- 100%. And honestly, he c- probably could have been prime minister. Oh, yeah. The tragic thing is, is shortly after he was elected... He died. He passed away of cancer. Yeah. Rather... Like, it, it, took, it did take everyone by surprise because he, he was... He kept it quiet. He kept it pretty well. He announced that he was stepping back, yeah, um, from his to to deal with this new cancer, and then all of a sudden one day we get the announcement that he passed away because he had been giving um giving updates that he he was actually doing well, and then all of a sudden took a turn for the worst, yeah, and then literally the next day after he was after he started getting ill again, he died. We lost it, and because unfortunately the. The, the NDP kind of lost a lot of their momentum because their the leader who succeeded him just didn't have the same charisma, the same I don't know. He had the, he definitely had more bite. Yeah. But he had, he, yeah, he'd need he had, a balance. But he also took the party to the right, which wasn't what the party needed to no. do. And uh, he made some tactical errors for sure. I, the thing about Jack Layton though is that Jack Layton really evoked a lot of to me, honestly, evoked Tommy Douglas in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like, he just had that same, like... Like, Jack Layton's speeches were always positive. They were always interesting, and, like, 
he had good things to say and like even if you didn't necessarily agree with what he was saying or his politics he was universally liked like even my dad who's never voted ndp and probably will never vote ndp <laughs> you know he even had a he had a lot of he had a tremendous amount of respect for jack layton as a as a politician and as a leader and like you know personally thought that it would be disastrous if he was ever elected prime minister but also liked him as a person enough that if he had been prime minister he wouldn't you know and so it is interesting yeah i, I do think jack layton uh, really evoked a lot of what tommy douglas believed yeah. in and i think that's a big reason for for his success was just he really ran on campaigns of like positivity and um yeah here's here's jack layton before the day before he passed away he wrote a letter to canadians and then passed away the next day the day it was released and basically it was the gist of it was saying my treatment is not going well i'm not going to survive this and just giving a a message to people who like to instill basically to instill hope yeah to continue to fight for like to continue to strive for a better not just a better canada but a better world and this is this is the this like we, we talk about how great of a speaker and how great of he was with words this is what he had this, this is the end of his uh his letter it says my friends love is better than anger hope is better than fear optimism is better than despair so let us be loving hopeful and optimistic and we'll change the world and reading that makes me miss him so much so yeah whereas the way like they they he definitely evoked tommy in a lot of ways they just had different methods of expressing themselves i don't For, think we're really going to see a politician like jack layton again to be honest i don't think we are either it's i i mean i hope we do yeah as much as i like jagmeet singh it's probably he's, cool. Gonna, he's but, cool but he definitely like i think even he would admit that he doesn't have the same oh yeah for sure as either tommy or jack layton jack layton but that's another accomplishment of the ndp they they now have the first visible minority leading a major political party in Canada. Yeah. And he makes so. fun TikToks. He does. He really does. <laughs> I don't even like TikTok, but he makes some good TikToks. <laughs> <laughs> God, it's, what a different world for when Tommy was around, right. you know, making radio speeches and now politicians TikToks. are making TikToks. And yeah, as much as we love Tommy, unfortunately, the eugenics just put a... Puts a big pallor on it. But at least he was man enough to admit he was wrong. He came back from it, yeah. yeah. And he never actually implemented any real programs. Of, you know, no, in fact, he, unlike Alberta. he fought against, like, whenever they tried to get it passed, like, to get yeah. it done while he was been premier, he absolutely refused to cooperate yeah. with it. Because, so, I guess, for extra context, like, Alberta had a really strong program, <laughs> eugenics like we program. We talk about that in our yeah. Peter Lougheed episode. Yeah, right? which I would definitely recommend listening to. And so it would definitely be... While that was happening simultaneously, it would have been extremely influential to Saskatchewan politicians to do the same because Saskatchewan tends to follow Alberta's lead a little bit, like not all the time, but we're very connected provinces. Yeah. And uh, well, just... here's a scary thing. I learned in one of my classes, one of I took a lot of political science classes for people who don't know, and one of my classes was about Alberta politics, and we talked quite a bit about eugenics. Scary thing is that it was a weird time because they the country still had to treat Nazi Germany like. A legitimate because they well they were a legitimate government they were elected yeah we didn't like them no we still don't like them but like we're in an awkward position where they had to had to work with these people alberta had a 
group of officials from Nazi Germany visit, and they particularly were interested in the eugenics program. Not long after they visited Alberta, they started their eugenics program in Nazi Germany. So there's a good idea that they probably got the idea from Alberta. Love that for us. Yeah. So there's so your fun Alberta history for the day. That way. And we got to mention that it was a it was a left-wing government who implemented eugenics. Yeah, it was the UFA, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Uf, United Farmers, Farmers of, of Alberta, Alberta. Who I mentioned earlier. Yeah. And then social credit just rolled with it. And then Peter Lougheed said, I'm getting rid of this. Yeah. So, Thanks, Peter. Appreciate you. Yeah, we appreciate Peter. We appreciate Tommy. We appreciate Tommy. What he's done. For all the good he's done. Yeah. And for the health care he's given us. Yes. Thank you, Tommy. I've had a few surgeries in my, in my life on my head. Mm-hmm. For those of you who don't know me, I have a massive scar on my head because I had a benign tumor. And it was removed and it was completely paid for by our insurance with, with Cirque du Soleil. Just the weirdest thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> I did have the surgeries in the United States because that's where we were living, but it was completely paid for through Canadian, Canadian health care. So thank, and they've also, you know, paid for the many CT scans I've had to get. <laughs> I, I I had to get. I don't get them anymore, but I had to get after and like all the checkups, yeah. all of my mental health issues being covered mostly. I mean, yeah, there's some definite like expansion to healthcare coverage that would be nice. I think dental care uh, would be a big one. Yes. And uh, mental health, more yeah, more would, su- more support for mental it's health. It's kind of bullshit how much people have to pay for their medication. Yeah, it's full disclosure. Yes, I do take medication, and it's expense. It is. It does get expensive. But I will say that a big part of that I wouldn't actually necessarily put on. I some of that blame is shared with the provinces in terms well, yeah, of distribution of care. Because healthcare is a provincial. provincial matter which doesn't it's provincially administered even though it's it yeah. doesn't make sense to me like in a way well it does to me in the sense that technically each province is going to have a better idea of how to administer health care to its people than a fit an overarching federal I suppose government. but i think there should at least be That's some the... federal guidelines yes well and there is like the health the health Act. yeah but it, there definitely needs to be more because there's still talk about like well in alberta, for instance here in alberta they're talking about making it a two-tier system a two-tier system which is bullshit um, and the other thing too is like just because it's covered by the Health Act doesn't necessarily mean that access is a thing. So, for instance, for abortions in Canada are covered by Health Canada and they are considered a like medically necessary act, whatever. It's all it's legal, everything like that. So you're guaranteed to be able to get a legal abortion in Canada. However, you are not guaranteed access because not every province actually gives access. So yeah. women in the province of Prince Edward Island generally have to travel to New Brunswick or Quebec to get abortions, or they have to travel like in other provinces like huge distances things like that so uh i did a big project in my biomedical ethics class on that um and just how like just because it's guaranteed as a you know it's it's guaranteed in the constitution as like you're allowed to get this you have the right to do it um and it's all there and it's free and covered um not every province has actually really provided access (laughs) yeah yeah so that's a challenge um alberta's healthcare system is kind of a nightmare right now yeah, I don't really want to talk about it, um, <laughs> but it's definitely a mess. But uh, yeah, I don't know, Tommy. I feel like Tommy Douglas's like legacy is uh, not really like discussed that often, but also like widely acknowledged at the same time. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I remember it was discussed for a while after the Greatest Canadian yeah. thing, and then just it's kind of petered out, obviously. 
And I was saying, because they're talking about Canada. For those of you, most most people won't know because most of our listeners aren't from Canada anymore. But uh, Canada's like in the process of changing their currency, like not their currency, but changing the, the people, on the the people and whatnot on them. And the only one that they've released so far has, I, I'm such an awful person because I cannot remember her name. Violet which, Desmond? Yes, Violet Desmond, who is basically Canada's Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks. Uh, she refused to move from an all-white seating in, Cal- Hal- in Halifax. Halifax and was arrested. And she's on the $5 Ten. bill. Or she's on the $10 bill. Excuse me. She's on the $10 bill. and It's cool because it's actually the first uh, vertically formatted bill in Canada. So her portrait, it's actually a portrait of her. And the bill is actually meant like it's ver- it's vertically instead of, yeah. It's really interesting yeah. stylistically. Um, it's a very nice bill. She looks good on it. I, I want to say they probably know who they're going to put on the other bills. Yeah. I think. But there there was talk about who should go on 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 the bills. And I'm like, well, Tom, I think I like Tommy, Tommy Douglas, I think should, Tommy be Douglas should be at, at least like yeah. mentioned. I, I don't know. No offense to the queen, but I would she prefer. Can go. I, I, yeah. It's about, yeah. Hit the bricks. That's going to be. That's always a controversial subject. John A. In my needs house. to go. John A. definitely he needs, needs to, to go. go. Wilfred sure. Laurier, Laurier needs, needs to, to go. really go. But Is yeah. McDonald on the 50 or the 100? Um, oh, no, it was... Uh, no, no, no. King is on the one... or So, I don't know. I got money in my pocket. Let's find out. <laughs> <laughs> you actually have cash. I have cash on me. So, the queen is still on the 20. The green queen. The green queen. There's Laurier on the 5. And there's, so I think King is the fifth. There's Demond, Des, Demond, Desmond on the on the ten, and on the opposite end is the is the Museum of Human Rights in Winnipeg. Yeah. Cool museum, recommend it. Yeah. So anyway, sorry, Your Majesty. I mean, you're definitely you're nowhere near as bad as some of the people on these currencies, but eh. mm, you've been on the twenty long enough, right? You're fine. William Lyon Mackenzie King is on the 50. Oh. And, and Borden is on the 100? Do, 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 I believe so. One second. Borden, yeah. Borden's yeah. on the 100. Let's put Tommy on the 5. Yeah, I would take Get that. rid of... Get rid of... Uh, he wouldn't want to be on Laurier. a big bill. No. Put Laurier on the 5. Yeah, fuck Laurier. And... Um, well, I'm actually glad that McDonald's not on any currency. I thought he was for some reason. <laughs> huh. He's not on any statues in Montreal anymore, too. <laughs> no, he's We're getting way off topic, but that's because we finished our episode in an hour. <laughs> or kind of like anyway, put Tommy on the on, on the on, currency. Put Tommy on the five because yeah. that'd be good. So I do have a an interesting fact. Cool, go for it. Um, I found a, there's a great. I I get a lot of facts from you because I watch a lot of factual shows on YouTube. One's called Quicksir, and he has a series called Tales from the Bottle. Yeah, and it's just really bizarre tales like i guess the idea is like these are the kind of tales people tell each other when they're drunk and be like hey you won't believe what like this story i heard and uh this is an actual true story is a man uh he was a helicopter pilot and he signed up for the army yeah and instead of being sent to vietnam like he wanted he was stuck in the united states fixing helicopters and he did not like that because he was actually a pretty you'll find out he was a pretty good pilot out of his frustration, uh, he stole one of the helicopters from his base and just took off over Maryland. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wasn't doing doing anything 
malicious story like now no malicious intent he was just going on a joyride basically and then was going to give up and be arrested and yeah. court-martialed he flew around maryland ended up in washington dc decided what if i la- i should land on the white house lawn oh dear and he landed on the white house lawn with a military fucking helicopter oh dear uh the secret service and the military like personnel they were just kind of like didn't really know what to do because <laughs> this had never happened before. wildly confusing the military attache at the white house is on the phone with yeah. his superiors requesting orders and they don't know what to do so they put him on hold in the meantime um the guy had enough and was just like all right took off again just flew off and at that point the attache is like you know what they're not going to give me orders i'm going to give orders and he goes if he comes back you open fire at this point he's being chased by the state police the dc police and like the maryland state police delaware state police and the dc police are all chasing him and he's like okay well i'm not going to make it back to my base yeah i'm gonna go back to the white house and i'm gonna surrender to richard nixon himself oh my god he goes back to the white house they open fire and even though even though he's hit and wounded he still manages to land the helicopter and bolt to the front to the doors of the white house before he's tackled by security personnel and at that point he gives up and uh negotiates they negotiate that he is released to military custody he's court-martialed he's imprisoned for a few years and discharged from the army of of course uh goes on gets married he gets a job just has a normal life after that no issues after that that was the only he literally had no ill intent of doing this or what what he was doing he was just frustrated and yeah, it is a true story. It's probably the most bizarre White House, weird, like uh, White House security breach ever. Yeah. So yeah, that's what I learned today. Cool. From this video. My the only fun fact or the only like interesting fact I can think of is probably one a lot of people know. But uh, did you know that when you snap your fingers, the sound that it makes is actually the sound of your uh, of your middle finger hitting your palm i actually did know that i I feel like a lot of people do but i don't think it's not something a lot of people know because like i've told people that and they're like is it really yeah yeah and i've I've known that for a long time but yeah so the sound you make when you snap is of your middle finger hitting the inside of your palm i'm just imagining people like in their cars and whatnot like listening and they're going oh yeah yeah so that's (laughs) That's the only for some reason that's the only fun fact i can think of right now that's a good fact but, uh, I like those kinds but it's cool like yeah, those kinds yeah, of facts yeah. it's like when my favorite was learning about chalk I didn't like the, with gambling like I didn't know that oh yeah, yeah I've heard that term used so many times now like it's I hear it all the time and I'm like I can't believe I never like yeah. heard that um, well it, it's like the, that like I had that long like it's like with these facts the reason why I like doing this is it's like one of us will have like kind of a long fact yeah. and whatnot and then one of us will be like have kind of a short fact yeah. and it reminds me is like earlier in the seasons is when um is when you had this like great fact i can't quite remember what it was and then you're like what's your fact and i was like oh well mine's not that interesting it's like the 10th largest pyramid is the bass pro shop in memphis tennessee <laughs> so, i just love so good weird, i i love, love weird random facts but, um yeah. me too uh but before we go we should actually mention something so on february 13th coming up here soon we're doing a trivia from the comfort of your living rooms via zoom so it's uh by donation send us an email or we have a paypal link up on our facebook page check it out uh if you send us money we will send you a zoom link and it is 7 p.m 7 p.m mountain daylight time so local time hopefully that works for everybody else around the world sorry if it doesn't but we can't make everyone happy 
Uh, yeah. I've been in a Zoom trivia where it was at four o'clock for me, and it was in Netherlands, and shit ton of people from around the world showed up. So we'll see what happens. Make it work. Um, so yeah, you, you send. It doesn't have. There's no minimum donation. Send it. Send any donation. Um, it's also not per person. It's per Zoom account. It's per Zoom account. So you can. Granted, please follow COVID rules. Yeah. And yeah. Um, yeah. also, you should know that we will be. If people are being rowed, like unreasonable and mean and malicious, we will remove you from the from the from the meeting, and we will not refund your money. No. Um. So yeah. But uh, yeah, it should be fun. Um. There's yeah. Check our social media for details. Get in touch with us as always. If you have questions, uh, follow us on Facebook. Lindsay made a badass poster for it. Insta. Yeah. I love it. Uh, yeah, you can see the poster on our Facebook page, Twitter, and Instagram, uh, at Panhistoria Podcast, at, ha- at Panhistoria Pod on Twitter. Consider following us, or consider subscribing to us on Patreon. We have some fun perks for people, and uh, your support means a lot. We're trying really hard to keep this free and to keep going. However, it's definitely a struggle for everybody right now. Uh, we get it. We get it, so no pressure, but we yeah. appreciate all of, the, all of you who are supporting us, and... Uh, I guess with that. I just got a text from Kevin to remind everyone that he's not a baby dinosaur. He's a big, ferocious T Rex. Hmm. Yes. He's not cute. Okay, Kevin. Thanks he's still that. a bit incensed from that post. Uh, post I sent the other day. Still feeling a little triggered. Yeah. He, he just takes things like we're making a, like making a, an attack at him when yeah. we're really not. We're just like, this is cool. He does suffer from small dinosaur syndrome. Yeah, the Napoleon. Not, the Napoleon it's, no, it's beyond a Napoleon. Com- it's a Kevin complex. <laughs> it's a Kevin complex. He has yeah. his own complex. Yeah, he does. And on that note, <laughs> yeah, on that bombshell. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Lindsay. I'm Jonah. Thank you very much. And, and uh, Kevin says rar. And we'll see you next. Oh, I guess we should announce the next episode. Oh, February yeah. <laughs> is. Um, wow, we're so great at this. Yeah, like, we suck. Almost three years in. Uh, next episode is the uh, Persian Gulf War. Oh yeah. So uh, we're all over the place this season. It's great. Join us as we melt in the sun and uh, join the rest of flag waving ignorant geeks, as System of a Down calls them. So yeah. we'll we'll see you then. Have a good one. Bye. It comes from the-